with all of his family that have come in from Colorado to be there at their sons. First thing I ask him, have you got snow? No, no snow. And he says, and I'm glad of it too. I received a message from my niece in Wichita, Kansas. Says, we just got a little skiff of snow, but it melted just as fast as it hit the ground. That's fine. Got a call last night from my wife, Jean. Foot of snow. Expecting more. May not be able to fly home. Well, we'll see. By the way, they're only just a few miles from where Abe and Maria are located up there as well, too. And uh, at least our kids have a snow plow to plow their big, long driveway out. Abe and Maria don't have a snow plow. They've got a four-wheel drive. They bought some furniture to put in their new home up there, uh, rented a truck. The truck couldn't make it up the hill, and they had to carry the furniture up the hill to put it in the house. Let's see if they come back. Well, we're preparing for the time of trouble. We've had visitors from other churches, Adventist churches, that says, man, I wished our pastor would preach on this. I can only do it by the strength of the Holy Spirit, so let's ask him to come, shall we? Father, I pray for the Spirit to be able to anoint my lips, to be able to share, because Jesus is coming, and we need to be ready for that great event. We've got a lot of things that have to happen before that takes place in a very short period of time, and only those who give their hearts to the Lord to be able to carry it through, we pray. Would you take our hearts now, in Jesus' name, amen. I met with a guy, he was a relative of mine. He was hiding around the corner of the house, thought that was kind of strange. And he kept looking and he had an anxious look on his face. And I was curious as to what was going on, so I went up to him and I said, you know, what's the matter? And he said, shh. I'm hiding from my mother-in-law. She wants me to clean the garage and I don't want to do it. I bet there are a lot of people in this world that are doing a lot of hiding. Some maybe from their mother-in-laws. Some of them are hiding from something different because they just don't want to do it. What I'm referring to is that hiding seems to be a theme in the Bible especially in the first and the last book of the Bible itself. If you remember, after Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, the Bible tells us in Genesis 3, verses 8 through 10, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. As soon as sin entered into the world, what they started to do, hide from God. The book of Revelation also tells us that the second coming of Jesus, when lost sinners are going to cry out for the mountains and the rocks to do something, we see it in Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. They cry out, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, 
and who is able to stand. Hide us. Hide us out of fear. In both instances, avoid contact with the mighty God. Is that even possible? Oh, we think, oh sure, the, the people who don't have no concept of God whatsoever, I could see them hiding. But you know what? There are those who believe in God who are going to hide as well too. Those who abide in Christ, they don't hide. We've been looking at the timeline, so to speak. And remember, this is just guessing because this is in the future and we don't know the exact things. For example, when the close of probation, is that very second is when the seven last plagues are going to hit or is there a few days or a few weeks? We don't know. But what we do know that when the National Sunday Law is enacted, God's people are to flee the cities. It will not be safe to live in a city. But we'll still come back into the city to evangelize because there's still hope. But when probation closes and the decree is issued, we're to flee even our country homes and be led by God to desolate, solitary places that he has prepared for us. Evangelism at that point is over. After the seven last plagues and the death decree against God's people goes into effect, Jesus wants us to do something. Luke 21, verse 28. Now when these things begin to happen, look up. Lift up your heads. Because your redemption draws near. At the second coming, we're not to hide from God. We've got to look up. This is what we've been waiting for. Revelation 19.7 tells us, Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. It's His church. But... The question that I'm often asked is this. How can I rejoice when the world has turned against me? How can I rejoice when my family members are very upset for the decisions that I've made just to follow the Lord? How can I rejoice when there's this great calamity that we call the time of trouble that's found in Daniel, how can I rejoice when there's so much that's going on around me? How can I rejoice when I have to leave everything that I have, leave my family, my friends, my home, my possessions, and rely only on God? How can I rejoice at all? John 15, verses 4 and then verse 6. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. This tells me that during the time of trouble, we're either hiding or we're abiding. 
We're either hiding from God or we're abiding in him. Don't you think the devil knows when we're trying to abide in God and he desires more than anything else that we change and begin to hide ourselves from God? Satan teams up with our sinful human nature and there are numerous schemes that can take place that in one way or another attempts us to hide from God or at least keeping at a distance. For example, if we look at atheism and the theory of evolution, atheism and evolution are fairly straightforward with their avoidance of God. Atheism doesn't want to admit that there's even a God. The theory of evolution wants to say, well, everything just happened, evolved over billions and billions of years. Now, here in our denomination, we definitely don't want to call anyone within the denomination an atheist. But we allow evolution to creep in to the teachings in our schools. Teaching our young people to avoid God. We, we use many things to try to describe and try to make evolution look almost Christian, but really it's teaching to avoid God at all costs. Never admit that He is the powerful Creator. There are other ways that are quite deceptive. And what I mean by deceptive is they make us think that we are connecting with God when in reality we are doing things where we're hiding from God. I want you to look at this quotation that comes from the book, The Great Controversy, page 572. Many are so wise in their own conceit that they feel no need of humbly seeking God, that they may be led into the truth. Although priding themselves on their enlightenment, they are ignorant both of the scriptures and of the power of God. They must have some means of quieting their conscience, and they seek that which is least spiritual and humiliating. What they desire is a method of forgetting God, which shall pass as a method of remembering him. In other words, they go through, they say the right words. They go through church. They do things within the church itself. But they try to avoid anything where they have to change their lives spiritually or to do something that they think might embarrass them among their friends or their co-workers, or their neighbors. They walk the talk, they walk the walk, and talk the talk, but they're hiding from God. They don't want to go any deeper in their relationship with Him. Let me give you a couple examples. They almost look like they're at the extremes, but in reality, they're both doing the same thing. Legalism, cheap grace. 
And you'll find both of these teachings, both of these type of individuals within our own denomination. They are both attempts to attain salvation without really connecting or abiding with God. For example, legalism. Trying to earn salvation on your own terms. Not relying upon faith in God to be able to guide your life. I'm going to do it my way. It it, it seems very powerful to be able to do it your way. Cheap grace is a way of saying since we can't earn salvation, it doesn't matter whether we live apart from God or not, we're still saved. Both of these ideas allow people to continue to hide from God, yet their conscience doesn't bother them because they are still classifying themselves as being a Christian and that we believe in Christ. Both groups can even use the exact same Bible verse to justify what they believe. And here's the verse, Acts chapter 16 and verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. With cheap grace, they say that as long as you believe, you're going to be saved. No matter what you do in life, there's no change that is necessary. Do you know how they evangelize? They're proud of the fact that they evangelize. They go to a stranger. They don't know who they are. And they begin to talk to them and they said they start saying, you know, You really, in order to be saved, you have to give your heart to the Lord. Can we kneel down right here in the middle of this street and be able to pray and you give your heart to the Lord? Here's a little written prayer that you can say if you don't know how to pray. And then they pray that prayer and they get up and they say, you're saved now. And never teach them anything else again. You don't have to learn anything else. You're saved by grace. It sounds great. You don't have to change your way. And it gives them a false sense that now I've got eternal life. Legalist. A legalist works to prove to the Lord Jesus that he's worthy to be saved. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he knows it by my righteous acts is what they're saying. By the way, they don't like the quote from Isaiah that says their righteousness is as filthy rags. Because they believe that it's their righteousness that's going to save them, to get God's attention. But they're really hiding from God's power that is there and is available for their life to really save them. Sometimes the legalist makes the claim that he's not a legalist. But his actions reveal otherwise. And they all say, I believe. Well, the word believe is used two different ways. James, the half-brother of Jesus. You thought if anyone really believed in growing up and living in the same house with Jesus, that your belief would be really strong in Him. But in the growing up years, James didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. 
James gives two things that we want to look at about belief. First of all, in James 2.19, he says, you believe that there is one God. You do well. But even the demons believe and tremble. Notice that the demons believe that there is only one God and he does exist. They know that because they used to live with him in heaven. They know about him. Therefore, they believe. But it's not enough to know that there is a God or just to believe. We can't stop there. If we if we do and have that type of belief, we aren't any better off than the demons themselves. And we'll still hide from God. Jesus tells an interesting illustration that I think it illustrates that point in Luke 13, verses 25 to 28. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you t- and, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you or where you're from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They thought they were going to be saved. Their desire is to come in to receive the rewards of heaven. They use the little things that they that they have accomplished within their life. To help them to think, I'm saved. They, they say to, to the great judge, well, we ate and drank in your presence. But Jesus says, I don't know you. To know God is to abide in God. Let's go back now to James. And we'll look at the second example of belief. Remember, the demons believed, but they weren't saved. James 2, verse 23 in the scriptures was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. At first, James tells us that the devil and his angels believe, but we know they won't be saved. But here he says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But didn't Abraham make mistakes? What's the difference between Abraham and the demons? Let me finish the verse. And the scriptures was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Therein lies the secret. 
The devil is the enemy of God. Abraham is the friend of God. A relationship can totally change the meaning of the word belief. Best friends cling to each other. They can't stand to be apart. They desire to spend as much time with each other as possible. Not allowing anything to disturb that, that time together. You never hide from a friend. You abide with the friend. God is my best friend. I want to be with Him at all times. I hang on to each and every word that He says. I'm willing to do whatever He asks. Why? Because we're best friends. That's why Jesus made this statement in John 15, verses 13 and 14. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And then He says, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. See the friendship? Jesus wants to be our friend. Do we want to be a friend with Him? Or do we hide from Him? Jesus proved that He was our friend by giving up His life for us. He didn't hide from us. He came and died for us. He also says this in Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Are you doing the will of the Father? The legalist will say, yes. The one that preaches cheap grace says, yes. But in reality, what they do is, is everything that they do in the church just becomes a formality of religion. It's expected of us. So I will do this because I'm expected to do that. Are you just going through the motions, but the intimacy of the relationship with God is gone? How long would a marriage last? If the intimacy of the marriage was gone, you're no longer best friends. What would happen if the husband or the wife no longer seeks to relate to the other one, but they want to do their own thing and leave the other one out of the picture? They could still go through life and still never get a divorce and still be classified by the law as being married. But are they really married? I can go through life, be classified, even have the baptismal certificate of being a member of the church, but do I have a relationship with God? But I'm doing what God expects me to do. Are you? Doesn't God expect you to go out and to witness? To tell people about Him? I mean, if you're best friends... You're going to go out and you're going to say, this is my best friend. Well, why are they your best friend? Well, let me tell you why. I have little kids that will tell me, oh, I've got my best friend in school. 
what do you like about them? Well, let me tell you, and they can't stop talking about their best friend. Are you afraid? Do you hide from witnessing to even the stranger? Do you make excuses? Oh, I'm not eloquent enough. I'm not educated enough. I'm not outgoing. That's hiding from God. How about remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? What are you doing to keep that day not only holy, but a delight? Because if you're the best friends, that should be the time. Man, I am. God has quit His work to be with me and I'm going to be with Him. Do you spend that time in lay activities? And then, as the day goes on a little bit farther, you start watching the clock and saying, boy, I hope this boring day gets over with so I can have some fun. That's hiding from God. Do you know that we're not to be enslaved to debt? It's biblical. Romans 13, verse 8 says, Owe no one anything. And then the inspired advice that comes from Adventist home, page 393, says, Make a solemn covenant with God that by His blessing you will pay your debts and then owe no man anything if you live on porridge and bread. It is so easy in preparing your table to throw out of your pocket 25 cents for extras. We've got to add for inflation. Take care of the pennies. Let's put in dollars. And the dollars will take care of themselves. In other words, are you doing your part to try to get out of debt? And it takes a little bit at a time. There's a radio program of uh, Dave Ramsey. One of his, if you've heard it, one of his big things is to be able to get out of debt in the shortest period of time. And some of them are owing three, four hundred thousand dollars. And they're sucking in their belt. They're selling their new car and buying old cars. They're selling some of their fancy TVs and everything else. And they're paying their debt off in a year. If the secular world can do it, can you imagine... By the blessing of God, how you can do the same thing in your own life. But that means you've got to really pull in the belt. Some of us are not willing to do that. If you want to have a good exercise, take this afternoon, if you can find it, dust it off, take your baptismal certificate, and usually on the inside of the baptismal certificate, it lists the basic doctrines of the church, and it has the biblical text for those things. Go through it and ask yourself the question, am I really following the Lord or am I only picking and choosing those things that I want to follow and chucking the rest out? You see, if I am abiding in Christ, I will want to follow whatever he says because he's my friend. 
Another thing that you might want to do this afternoon, if you don't have anything else to do, is reread the book of Exodus. If you really want to know what it will be like during the time of trouble, look at the book of Exodus. But I want you to see a couple of things about Exodus. Exodus 16, verses 1 through 4. Notice this. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. Isn't that interesting? They called it the wilderness of sin. Which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Keep that in mind. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. He's testing the relationship. Do you trust me? I want you to notice, first of all, when things weren't going their way, they started complaining. And what did they want to do? They began to look back to the old life that I just left. Man, I wished I was back in Egypt. Stood out here in the wilderness of sin. Those who abide in Christ will not complain, but will turn to God in faith. In this situation, God supplied them with food. By the way, how long passed from the time they left Egypt until he supplied them for food? Two months. What did they live on for two months? Can you live on absolutely nothing for two months? They already had provisions that they had laid up that they took with them. When it was gone, then God took over. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of us who have this presumptuous faith that if i got to leave in the time of trouble, I'm not going to take anything. I'm not going to prepare anything. God's going to help me. Tell you what, when you begin to look and to read, God does not supply you with the food until the death decree hits. And you have to leave even your country homes. That's when the food will come. That's when he will supply your needs. For then, we have to provide and to prepare ourselves. Well, in verse 1 it says that they had been traveling for the two months. They had been living on the food that they had brought. God wants us to prepare for the worst because we know that it's coming. And when we run totally out of provisions, he's going to supply the rest. But I must be willing to do my part before I can expect God to fulfill his promises. Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6. Continuing on. Now the mixed multitude, you would have thought they'd learned the lesson. The man is coming down, they're being fed, everything is great. Now the mixed multitude who are among them yielded to intense cravings. So the children of Israel also wept again. 
and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. And they're being fed. They're out in the middle of nowhere. But what are they longing for? They missed the conveniences of the old life. God was supplying manna, but they wanted, boy, I want my steak. And I want not only the steak, I want a, I want a sweet, juicy melons. How about a salad with cucumbers, leeks, onions, garlic? Oh, man, that good life. It sure did taste good. They no longer cared for the miracle that the manna was there. They no longer sitting there and saying, thank you, God, that you are supplying our needs. No, they're saying, man, I wish I'd go back. I was better off back in that old life. They were allowing their taste buds to control them. Isn't that where sin entered in? The appetite. During the time of trouble, you won't be able to go to the Olive Garden. You won't be able to quench your thirst with a nice glass of cold raspberry lemonade. You can't sit back in your lazy boy recliner and click on the television with your remote control and watch Dancing with the Stars. Maybe... Maybe if I'm inviting in Christ and I know where I'm going, maybe God is saying you need to start weaning yourself from these things. These things are the things that are controlling you, your appetite, your senses. If you don't begin to wean and begin to abide in me, to trust in me, to be my friend, to realize that I'm going to take you through some rough times, we're going to get through to the end. You're going to have food like you've never tasted before in your life. But you've got to trust me that I'm going to get you there. If you don't, if you start longing for the old way of life, you're going to hide from God. Because you're not abiding with Him. Isaiah 33, verse 2, 8, 9, and 14, 17. You got all that? Oh, Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning. Our salvation also in the time of trouble. Are you praying for God to be your arm of strength in the time of trouble? Continues on. The highways lie waste. The traveling man ceases. He has broken the covenant, the relationship. He has despised the cities. He regards no man. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon is like a wilderness. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. 
The sinners in Zion are afraid. Going through the time of trouble. Everybody's going to go through the time of trouble. The sinners are afraid. Do you know what happens when you're afraid? Adam says, I didn't come when you called. I hid from you because I was afraid. I was naked and I was afraid. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites, those who say that they are Christ, but are not. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, who shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Do you see what Isaiah is saying about the righteous in the time of trouble? He's the one who walks righteously. Why? Because I'm best friends with my God. He speaks uprightly. He, de- he despises the oppression. He refuses bribes. He refuses to listen to bloodshed, shutting his eyes from seeing evil. That could be the television and movies. And he's going to realize that during the time of trouble, God's going to see him clear through to the end. His defense will be the fortress of rocks. You see, the rocks have a double meaning. To those who do not abide in Christ, they're going to call the rocks to fall down and hide them from God. For those who have a relationship who abide in Christ, Christ is their rock of safety. And they can say, our bread and our water will be sure. Not steak and eggs or veggie links and the relishes. Jesus didn't say that he was going to give you a big feast when you're going to be out in the wilderness and he supplies his food. It may only be just bread and water coming from the rock. But I don't care. Because I know when that takes place and I'm abiding in Christ, I'm going to make it to the other side. I'm going to make it to the end. So let me ask you a question. Are you hiding or abiding? The answer to that question has eternal consequences for both sides. If I'm abiding, I have the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, my Lord. If I'm hiding, I have eternal death. Both of them are eternal. It's my choice. So what about you? Jesus wants us to abide with him. If you're willing, 
please stand and turn in your hymnals to hymn number 50. Abide with me.
and we with you. That means we may have to give up the things of this world. We may have to face some rough times. But whatever it takes, you're our Father. Jesus is our brother. We're friends. We have that relationship. And if it's meant to be able to help us to be ready for this incoming of Jesus, then take things away. The things of this world will not count. Only abiding in you will make the difference. So please abide with us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.